Welcome to Talking Biotech, the podcast dedicated to exploring the latest advancements in biotechnology, sponsored by Calabra, the R&D software that accelerates scientific discovery with AI. Each week, we'll dive into the latest innovations and discoveries with industry leaders and pioneers. Now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulta. I want to see science serve a useful purpose to improve the standard of living for all people. Why is anyone fighting food advance? A very small percentage of the world's population is fortunate enough to have the luxury of turning down food. We've arranged a society based on science and technology. There was nobody who understands anything about science and technology. You can't build a peaceful world on empty stomachs and human misery. You're listening to Talking Biotech, a weekly podcast illuminating issues in agricultural and medical biotechnology. Your questions and concerns are addressed using a science-based approach with the goal of driving discovery to application with communication. Now here's your host, Dr. Kevin Folta. Hello and welcome to Talking Biotech number 33. Uh, today, a couple good things. So first of all, the, the episode features Dr. Arhin Van Thunen. And uh, Dr. Van Thunen comes from uh, Keygene. He's the CEO of Keygene. And we'll talk about a plant that most of us don't consider to have tremendous value. And if anything, we think of as a nuisance. And it just goes to show you that uh, sometimes we have to really look carefully at that with the raw materials that nature gave us and that humans can shape them into very useful plant products and this could have tremendous value going forward I won't tell you what it is haha I would be remiss to not address the 800 pound gorilla in the room um, when I start the podcast the introduction has three voices and in four quotations one comes from Penn Jillette, the uh, magician and comedian and philosopher. Um, the other one is um, Carl Sagan, and Dr. Sagan being recognized for his work at uh, talking about science to the public interface, who certainly has always been a hero of mine. And the last is two quotations from Dr. Norman Borlaug, who uh, should be a household name, a Nobel Peace Prize winner, um, an exceptional scientist who introduced genetics to areas of the world to serve the world's uh, most poverty-stricken areas, uh, changing the way that they had access to genetics and ensuring that more people would be able to survive because of improved crops. So I was very grateful this week to be um, not just nominated, to actually receive the Norman Borlaug uh, Cast Agricultural Communications Award. Um, which is really a, a, a tremendously huge honor um, beyond words. Uh, I think it was the first time I was ever knocked speechless in a while. And I just wanted to really express how grateful I am uh, for this opportunity and to uh, be named to anything that would be associated with uh, Dr. Borlaug certainly is the pinnacle of someone's career 
who would be dedicated to science and science communication and the application of science to solve human problems. And uh, with that, it's uh, something that um, has been, it's been a wonderful um, time since I've known that I would be um, receiving this award and looking forward to hopefully get using this as a platform to share more science and uh, maybe even increase the audience of this podcast or whatever. Um, so with that, I'll complete the podcast. Thank you all for listening. And we'll, no. <laughs> yeah, you know, I mean, it's kind of, it's kind of hard to imagine how, you know, now what do you do? You know, it's uh, it doesn't get much, much better than this. So um, we'll uh, go ahead with today's interview <laughs> and uh, we'll go from there. Thank you very much for listening. Uh, your kind words, your thoughts, your tweets, your reviews of the Talking Biotech podcast made it a significant part of the package that people looked at when they considered how to assign this uh, very prestigious honor. And I really appreciate that. So thank you very much for listening and on to today's interview. Today on the Talking Biotech podcast, we go to the Netherlands and speak to KeyGene CEO, Dr. Archin van Tunen. And uh, Dr. van Tunen is, uh, as I mentioned, CEO of KeyGene, <laughs> a company that uh, is recognized for their edgy innovation in plant breeding. And uh, I had the pleasure of seeing his presentation at the Plant Animal Genome Meeting this uh, winter in San Diego and and just amazed me and I couldn't wait to get him on the podcast. So welcome to the Talking Biotech podcast, Dr. Van Tunen. Yeah, welcome. Could you tell me about KeyGene and what the company does in more entirety? Uh, KeyGene is a is a is an egg biotech company. So we we are one of the larger specialized dedicated egg biotech companies in the world. I think the largest in uh, in, in Europe. And and what we basically do is that we develop methods and also traits um, for um, uh, improved uh, crops and, and new varieties. So we call ourselves the crop innovation company. Okay, and, and with the particular problem we're going to discuss today, with what is the problem that you're looking to solve? Well, the problem we are looking to solve is um, uh, the, the threat of a shortage of uh, natural rubber. Um, at this moment in time, uh, rubber applications are are uh, are, are uh, widespread, um, and of all the rubber which is used in the world, uh, around forty five percent for for the rubber applications, natural rubber is uh, required for quality reasons. Uh, natural rubber is um, is uh, in be much better quality than the uh, synthetic uh, rubber, and uh, for those forty five percent of the uh, applications, you need rubber coming from the Hevea rubber tree. And the issue there is that only in two countries, basically 80% of all the natural rubber comes from uh, Thailand and uh, Indonesia, uh, there seems to there is a, a shortage threatening um, because of the growing economies in the world. That's on the one side. And on the other side, it is also uh, increasingly becoming more um, uh, expensive to collect the rubber uh, from the rubber tree um, with the increased prices also of labor in those two, com those two countries. So there's a requirement for uh, um, more uh, natural rubber and there is a, that also requires an alternative crop. So we need other crops 
from which we can uh, extract natural rubber. And this was really the first I've known of this particular shortage. This this particular crisis was when I saw your talk uh, last year at Plant Animal Genome, and really was amazing to me because I've always known that other plants produce a latex type compound, but I never knew that this solution may come from a common weed. So, what is the uh, solution that Key Gene has proposed? Yeah, by the way, there's one other strategic problem connected to rubber trees. In, in South America, where originally this tree is coming from, um, there is, a, there is a, a fungus which is attacking those, uh, those trees that makes it impossible to grow rubber trees commercially in South America. Unfortunately, the fungus did not reach uh, Southeast Asia yet. But when that happens... That will be, that will inflict a big crisis on 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 uh, that crop, that rubber tree, uh, the the rubber tree plantations. So it's another another reason to develop alternative uh, alternative crops for uh, natural rubber. And basically, there are only a few options to develop uh, alternative crops. One is wayuli, which is a plant growing in a desert. Uh, it's it's a kind of a uh, yeah, how, how do you call it? It's a bushy plant. And the other one is um, the dandelion, the Kazakhstan dandelion. And the Kazakhstan dandelion, compared to the uh, the one that we see in the Western Hemisphere, where, or Western world, where we see uh, this small, um, well, bushy plant with a uh, yellow flower. It's very familiar here. And uh, grows ubiquitously in any kind of plain or any kind of place in in a landscape or front yard. And what is particularly attractive about the Kazakhstan dandelion that makes it a target for your work? Yeah, the, the interesting thing about the Kazakhstan dandelion is that there is a latex, especially in the roots, but it's also visible a little bit in the in the leaves. It's the white, milky sap, um, and from that latex, from that sap. From the roots of the Kazakhstan dandelion, you can you can uh, extract it and you can make a very high quality rubber out of it. And basically, that is already known for many many years, uh, for centuries, because Kazakhstan people they tend to go uh, go out in the in the mountains where these plants are growing, and they would extract, they would take a little bit of those roots and they would chew in it. So it's a kind of a chewing gum. So it was a gummy substance. And um, earlier this last century, it was also discovered that you can make even very good rubber out of it. And actually in the Second World War, when we had basically the similar situation, Southeast Asia was not reachable for uh, the German army, the American army, and also not for the Russian army. In the Second World War, uh, Kazakhstan, then the line was commercially grown to extract rubber for the tires of the Messerschmitts and of the of the trucks of the of the various armies, so that's where it where it's coming from. So why don't we use this Kazakhstan dandelion today in all of our rubber, rubber production? Why is this not a major cultivated crop as it exists from the wild? Yeah, th- there's one problem with with the Kazakhstan um, uh, dandelion. It's a very tiny 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 plant, so to commercially grow it, it is unattractive and that's also the reason why after the second world war that crop disappeared so when the necessity to grow it because the other thing was not possible southeast asia was cut off by the japanese army occupation 
uh, then, then that crop disappeared. Um, but we only need a factor of three, uh, let's say, increase of the, um, of the amount uh, of rubber produced per square hectare or per, per square acre, uh, if you want. So that's what we're trying to, to do, to increase the amount of uh, rubber production per, per square hectare. And when we can reach that, that objective, then we have a commercial new crop available. You're doing a variety of uh, either crosses or uh, other tricks in order to increase the the size and the latex in the uh, in the dandelions coming through this breeding program. So, could you touch on some of the key priorities of that breeding program and some of the strategies you're using? Well, the main strategy, the the first and and most important trick we are doing is that we are going to make an interspecific cross which is a cross between two species, uh, like crossing between, um, uh, let's say, a donkey and a, and a horse, as you, if, if you might think. Um, and what we have done and are doing is making crosses between the Kazakhstan dandelion and the normal Dutch dandelion. And you probably also have normal dandelions in the United States in your gardens. The normal dandelion is much bigger, and it can also get a, a quite a big root. So the first thing we are doing now and have done is to make a cross between normal Dutch dandelion, common dandelion, and this tiny Kazakhstan dandelion. And we succeeded in doing that. And we have selected now plants which have, the, on the one hand, the fitness and the size of the common dandelion, and on the other hand, the, the capability of producing the appropriate uh, rubber in the roots uh, from Kazakhstan dandelion. So we have an interspecific cross, kind of a mule in the dandelion world. Yeah, and that's a, that's a really important uh, breakthrough in that you're able to have a good cross that has traits that reflect all of the qualities you want. But, you know, mules are sterile. They can't reproduce because of the interspecific nature. So is this a genetic dead end? Or, or how do you propose to take this to the next level if you have this... Uh, cross that that is not uh, necessarily full fertility well first of all it's it's not so easy to make the cross and uh, we did not do it just by just like that but we used dna uh, probing tools to follow the different genes from the kazakhstan down the line which are which are involved in this rubber biosynthesis and on the other hand we also follow the genes which cause the fitness in the common dandelion, and using biotechnology, we could we could make the 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 perfect combination between those two types of genes. So the fitness genes of common dandelion and the um, latex genes, the the rubber genes from the Kazakhstan dandelion. These were combined, and when you do that, you can simply self-propagate. The crop you, uh, uh, which was derived from that, so that is in contrast to the situation between the cross between uh, donkeys and, uh, and and horses. In our case, the plants were perfectly fertile because Kazakhstan dandelion and common dandelion are much more alike than those two than those two animals we were talking about. Ah, okay. So, the, so they're close enough where you still can have fertile offspring. I, I wasn't yes. okay. So I, I was. Um, 
I'm thinking about apomixis and apomixis that's occurring in dandelions and, and how how has this cross helped you to under, better understand that process? And Well, yeah, apomixis is um, uh, uh, the ability of a, of a plant and there is various plants who have that, that, uh, that, that feature to make seeds without fertilization. So the flower just grows and without pollen from another flower, uh, seeds are produced. And all those seeds are a perfect copy, genetically spoken, from the mother plant. So it's a clone. So it's clonal propagation of seeds. And, and in that line, that is very handy, because if we are talking about production of rubber through the lion, then we need a lot of seeds. And the cost of seed production, if we have to make individual crosses, uh, or if we have to use bees and humblebees to make all those pollinations, that is going to be very expensive. But if you have the capability of apomixis in that crop, um, then you have clonal propagation uh, automatically. So you have seed production at a very low cost. And that keeps the whole the whole uh, picture producing a lot of rubber for a restricted amount of uh, dollars. And that keeps that financial pictures very affordable. And it also uh, ensures some genetic uniformity as well, because once you get the correct combination, you're now producing uh, millions of clones. I mean, anyone who's seen a dandelion reproduce, you know that you have all of these seed heads that come through that composite flower, or all these seeds that come through that composite flower that are um, that uh, are airborne and on the little parachute, you know, that gets blown in the wind. So you make a lot of dandelion seeds from one foundational plant, which must be a really strong benefit to this approach. Exactly, exactly. So if you make the perfect dandelion, you can very quickly propagate it in the same perfect con- uh, genetic uh, constitution. Yes, indeed. And, and so why not just use a transgenic approach? Because, they're, you know, a genetic engineering approach. We, we know the genes, as you mentioned, you know, we know genes that can confer size and robust growth. And we know the latex biosynthetic pathway pretty well. So why not just boost that in the one dandelion or uh, increase size in the other? Yeah, it's not so it's not so it's not so simple as it may sound, because there are multiple genes involved in the synthesis of the of the rubber polymer itself but then the rubber polymer also has to be produced in a particle so an intracellular uh, vesicle and then that intracellular vesicle filled up with um, uh, rubber um, polymer molecules it has to be transported to the outside of the cell and then it is excreted in special ducts and so there is not only the synthesis genes which are involved, it's also the, the genes involved in, let's say, um, um, uh, keeping the, the, the polymers uh, on that latex particle. And there's also the, the uh, exp- excretion of the, of the rubber, which is very important, in the rubber ducts in the form of latex. Um, so everything together... Most of the genes we already know, but there are still a number of genes which are involved in synthesis of good quality rubber in the Russian dandelion, Kazakhstan dandelion, which we still do not know. So there was also a little bit of trial and error in this whole system, which I described earlier, when we followed the genes from the Kazakhstan dandelion. uh, There were some unknown factors which we also had to uh, select for. 
So it's it's more complicated than you think. It's not only one gene which you could use in a transgenic situation. It's a whole set of genes. Um, and several of the genes are not even known. So a transgenic situation is not possible. What were some of the other byproducts of this research with respect to understanding apomixis and that, that process by a clonal propagation of seed production without uh, fertilization? Yeah, that's that's also very interesting. Um, in, in normal dandelion, so the dandelion which grows here in the Netherlands, it's a very interesting um, uh, phenomenon, but north of the Rhine River, which flows through the middle of the Netherlands, north of the Rhine River or south, I don't know, I always forget which way around it is, but north of the Rhine River, all the dandelions are apomictic, so they reproduce without pollination, and south of it, um, the dandelions are sexually propagated, or the other way around, I have to say. But, um, and, and, and using that, that these two types of dandelions, we were very interested in uh, identifying the two genes which are um, which are involved in this um, apomixis phenomenon, and it's the dip gene, diplospory gene, and it's the par gene for partiogenesis. And uh, basically, what we also presented in a conference in uh, California a couple of months ago and half a year ago at the famous Mendel conference, 150-year Mendel conference in Brno in, in Czech Republic, um, was that uh, we have identified and also cloned the dip gene. So the first half of the apomixis process. And we are now busy characterizing that gene. And we're also busy, together with Wageningen University, identifying and isolating the uh, second gene, the PAR gene. And when we have those two genes, we think we can start using and in Introducing apomixis in other species, other in the real crops, not dandelion, but real crops. So, just to summarize, in dandelion, for rubber production, we can we can use the natural genes just by crossing. But when we want to introduce, for instance, apomixis in corn or in soybean, we need the genes from dandelion and introduce those genes into corn and or soybean or other crops uh, by transgenesis. Because in corn, there is no, there is no um, apomixis known. That's right. And, and so and I can think of a thousand other crops where this would be an amazing breakthrough. But what? how would you describe that to somebody who, like why would you want apomixis occurring in uh, other crops, I mean, isn't this idea of genetic segregation and biodiversity a good thing? Or, like, why, why would you want apomictic behavior? Well, there's several reasons. First, apomixis could reduce the cost of seed production significantly. So that's one thing. Um, another advantage would be that if you have apomixis, you can immediately fix, uh, let's say, a very um, beneficial cross, uh, and you can... You can deduce and derive uh, genetically identical seeds from that. So you can make a cross between one parent and another parent, and then you know for sure that when you induce apomixis, all the seeds coming from that child or that offspring will be identical. So you can very quickly fix an optimal cross and start propagating it through seeds. And, and that can speed up the whole process of variety development 
tremendously. For instance, in a crop like soybean. You can also make a cross between one plant and another plant, which is which is very tedious to make, like for instance in in uh, in, um, in soybean. It's very difficult to make a cross between the father and the mother because it's self-pollinating um, so much. But when you have made a cross by very careful pollination, then you can immediately fix it through apomixis. So speed of variety development, better variety development, and also lower uh, costs of seed production are, are a number of the advantages of, uh, of apomixis. One of the big ones I think about is uh, getting around the problem of self-incompatibility, that where you have to include pollen from a separate um, a separate variety in a uh, say in an orchard or in in some sort of large plant production scenario um, like uh, cherries or apples or well cherries anyway um, where you have to have this alternative pollen source in order to produce your crop that could this kind of genetic strategy get us around those problems of having to plant multiple genotypes or multiple varieties even though one of them is not used in the commercial uh, production per se. Yes, yes, indeed, and 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 of course, you know, insects to pollinate, and and sometimes we, when when we have, uh, let's say, wet weather, that insect pollination can be a problem. So it will also increase the amount of seed production under bad weather conditions because you don't need the insects or you don't need so much of the insects. So there's a lot of lot of things you can think of here. And that's just, uh, it's really, it, that's what one of the most exciting things about seeing your talk was here's a really great solution for a modern problem, this problem of decreasing latex availability or rubber um, for the production of rubber. But at the same time, you solved a really intriguing bi- basic biology question that may have incredible application in the broader plant f- field. And uh, it's pretty exciting. And where, when do you think that we would first start to see dandelion-produced tires for our cars and bicycles? Oh, we already made a, a tire with, 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 with rubber coming from uh, Kazakhstan dandelion together with a Dutch India company, a tire company, uh, Vredestein. And, um, so, and, and we already know that the tires made from that uh, dandelion source are very good in quality. So uh, we know already that, that we can do that. Uh, now it's more a matter of scaling it up and also start start growing our interspecific hybrids between common dandelion and, and, the, um, and the Kazakhstan dandelion uh, in order to produce enough rubber. And probably the first applications will not be tires, but maybe shoes or, or, or gloves or other, uh, let's say, applications of rubber in which the volume uh, of rubber uh, amount is, is much uh, lower, much smaller. I see. And that's, um, I just, am, I get excited anytime I think about these kinds of breakthroughs. And it seems to be much more uh, sustainable, too, compared to potentially rubber tree plantations. When you talk about the uh, the potential threats from the fungus, that's one issue. But how about just its uh, agricultural impact? If you're talking about water resources or other inputs, is the dandelion something that looks really favorable compared to the traditional mechanisms of production? First of all, you have to compare it with the uh, the current production method of natural rubber, which is rubber trees, which goes at the expense of the uh, 
national forests in Indonesia and on Borneo. Um, I think a number of the ape species are uh, are under pressure um, as a result of uh, large-scale uh, use of plantations. So that's number one. Secondly, I think there is an advantage in uh, in uh, dandelion in it that it use that it is used to grow on marginal grounds. Uh, if you take a look at common dandelion where it's growing, it can grow under le- relatively poor, let's say, nutritional and water conditions. So my expectation is that the um, that the Russian dandelion crossed with the um, common dandelion that combination that it will grow. Uh, under le- uh, on the conditions in which it is very difficult to grow uh, interesting other crops. Um, and then the second thing is you have to, of course, compare it with the situation where we cannot allow ourselves to uh, cut down the last forests uh, in Southeast Asia to produce more rubber plantations. And so I think there's a, there's a clear benefit in switching or partly switching towards the use of uh, uh, dandelion as a source for them. What kind of time frame are we looking to for us to begin to see apomixis and other plants and rubber from these uh, interspecific hybrids? When will we actually see those products? Yeah, rubber with the interspecific hybrids, uh, we expect that uh, within the coming five years or so, we will start uh, producing the first commercial uh, harvest for uh, product applications, and we are not doing that alone. For instance, we are in the rubber program, we are collaborating with a US company called Cultivate, and also with, uh, with a number of organizations, including Wageningen University here in uh, Europe, and with the Kazakhstan government. Um, so we expect in the coming five years that we will have the first commercial harvest together with our partners. Um, and then for the upper mixes, I think it will take longer because there we are still in the process of identifying the second gene and introducing this phenomenon in, in another uh, species. So my expectation is that there we need between five and ten years before, before we can come up with first applications. So, Dr. Arjen Van Turen, uh, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate you telling us about this uh, very interesting breakthrough and very interesting opportunity. Uh, thank you very much for joining me today. You're welcome. Thank you. And that's Dr. Arjen Van Turen, the CEO of Keygene in the Netherlands, coming up with interesting ways to make the rubber literally hit the road in the future. We'll be right back after this short message with one of your questions. Hello, everybody. Now, you might have noticed that the Talking Biotech podcast frequently incorporates guest hosts. The goal here is to expose those interested in science communication to a wider audience and maybe provide a friendly entrance to how to actually engage the public in a meaningful way. Now, it's always hard to take that first step, but I'm glad to offer this platform for you to tell your story and work with me in discussing new technologies with people that created them or understand them well. So if you're interested in joining me as a co-host, send a note to TalkingBiotechPodcast at gmail.com and let me know. We'll devise questions together. We'll find fun ways to make you part of the discussion. Heck, you do the whole damn thing. I'll just listen. Remember, science flows best when innovation moves to application, and, and that takes communication. 
If this vehicle can bring more voices to the discussion, it only amplifies my interest in sharing the beautiful stories of science and technology that can help people and help the planet. Yeah, I'm embarrassed as hell to be able to say that that is a music version of Mac Davis. I believe in music. <laughs> uh, so I got an interesting question this week by Twitter, and uh, unfortunately was only able to partially answer it. So I thought I would um, ask an expert, and being surrounded by experts, that's easy to do. So uh, I sent someone out with a microphone to interview Dr. Kurt Hanna. Um, let's see if I can find him. Vern, are you there somewhere? Yes, I'm here. Uh, how's it going? Doing okay? Yes, yeah, good to talk to you, too. This is an interesting thing, doing the remote podcast. Yeah, so are you uh, there with uh, Professor Hanna? How's he doing? Yeah, he's here, too. Okay, why don't uh, you just go for it, then? Thanks. Okay, so this is Vern Blazek sitting here with Dr. Kurt Hanna. Uh, Kurt Hanna is a professor at the University of Florida in Gainesville, Florida. He's an expert on something called ADP glucose pyrophosphorylase, uh, something that sounds like a diabetes drug or something. Uh, well, you know, is that accurate? Uh, well, not quite. But first, glad to meet you in in uh, uh, face to face, Vern. Um, no, ADP glucose pyrophosphorylase actually is a is an enzyme involved in uh, starch biosynthesis. Uh, it's found in in all, all plants, bacteria. Uh, and it's it's an important enzyme because it's it's a regulatory step in the pathway. Uh, starch is important because it makes up about seventy percent of the dry weight of uh, of a seed. Okay, so you said a lot of real fancy stuff there, which is good because I'm here to ask you a question from one of the listeners of the Talking Biotech podcast that had a question about corn. The question is, comes from Jeff Halmos. It says, the claim I keep hearing is that GM food crops are reducing variety, that certain types of corn can't be found anymore. Your thoughts. So asking you, Dr. Hanna, what are your thoughts on that question? Well, technically, the, the statement is correct. And, and it's correct because the old hybrids are just no longer competitive. Uh, it's very similar to our cell phones. I'm old enough to remember when uh, people used to carry bag phones around uh, as their cell phone. Um, cell phones certainly have improved over the over the years, and uh, we no longer see uh, bag phones. And the same is true with with hybrid corn. Uh, new varieties come out every year that are superior to the ones uh, in the preceding years. Uh, so. It, technically, it's it's true. Uh, old hybrids go away, kind of like the Edsel car went away because it wasn't competitive. The important point, though, is that the uh, germplasm that was used to develop those hybrids uh, is still available, is still being used uh, in breeding programs. It's valued not only because of the diversity it represents, but also because it's it's a good source for for future hybrids. Uh, as the environment changes, uh, these old lines will will are will be valuable, and they're valuable now as gene sources. And one one comment I've heard Kevin make before is that it seems like we're past the bottleneck that modern molecular tools and genomics technologies allow scientists to perhaps be able to more rapidly 
introduce these older lines back into more elite lines. And how much truth is there to that, that we actually are seeing more diversity than maybe we've seen in the previous decade or so? Uh, well, that's, uh, Kevin's statement is, is correct. Uh, these new techniques of, uh, um, of uh, molecular markers and things allows the breeders to follow these things much more efficiently. The, the other point that should be made with corn is there, there's roughly 40,000 genes in the, in the uh, genome of a corn, and, and about 5% of these, about 4,000 of these genes, are not found in every, in every corn line. Uh, so breeders uh, add and subtract genes in the new varieties uh, via breeding. And there are also systems in corn that actually synthesize new genes uh, by taking pieces of old genes and, and putting them together to make new genes. So simple traditional breeding uh, has actually introduced new genes in the past. How do breeders actually know that a new hybrid may be superior to the old ones? Uh, excellent question. Um, this is done by, by testing. New hybrids are grown in many locations throughout the, the world. And there are actually uh, some interesting data uh, developed where people have looked at hybrids, uh, looked at their yields as a function of when they were um, uh, released. And the data form a very interesting uh, pattern. The, um, uh, the breeding efforts lead to about a 1% increase in yield uh, over time. So in, say, 50 years, uh, just by traditional breeding, uh, yield has increased 50%. So new, new hybrids are looked at uh, quite extensively, uh, tested in many locations throughout the world. And certain hybrids are, are deemed superior for particular areas of the country. So one hybrid may not be superior, say, in northern Illinois versus, say, southern Missouri or, or northern Florida. So these are, these are environmentally sensitive uh, differences, um, and each, each variety is chosen for a particular location. Well, that's really wonderful. So you're not just a professor. You also have been known to fall off a combine here and there. So what, what, what do you know about farming? Uh, interesting point. You've been talking to some, some friends of mine, I can tell. Uh, yeah, I was born and raised on a farm in Indiana and, and remain active uh, in the farming operation. Um, I do go back every fall and run a, a, a $300,000 combine. Uh, and, yes, I did fall off and uh, broke some ribs actually uh, unfortunately it was the beginning of the season and i i had to continue harvesting until the crop was harvested well professor emeritus kurt hanna thank you so much for your time today this is Vern blazik for talking biotech and back to kevin fulta at the mothership thank you Vern, and thank you professor hanna uh, always wonderful to work with experts who can answer someone's question. So if you have questions, uh, send it to me at talkingbiotech at gmail.com. And if I can't answer it, I'll track down one of the 50 colleagues I work with or the hundreds of people I work with who uh, can't answer that question. And we'll take care of you. So, so ends episode number 33. And I want to thank you for listening, but more importantly, I want to thank you for your support. Um, over the last uh, 
year or whatever it's been, uh, it's been the support of strangers, people who I don't know, reaching out and saying thank you, people saying, uh, uh, defending me online, people discussing the reality of the science and the reality of what I do with the people who don't and and uh, and the people who want to really malevolently uh, kind of tarnish my record and reputation. I appreciate that a lot. When I was off um, on hiatus uh, from November to February, I would uh, run and listen and hear the theme song of this podcast. I would hear those quotes going on in my head. I'd listen to the episodes, and I'd be so upset because I just wanted to be back doing this. And it really means a lot, uh, not just to be back here with you, but also to uh, receive the recognition of the, the Borlaug Award. That really, um, that's, like I said earlier, where do you go from there? Um it really is a uh, an honor beyond words, and we all need to be stepping up and taking care of the work that he's no longer here to do. We got big shoes to fill, and um, and we need to step up our game to make sure that we're moving technology into the hands of those who need it. So I will conclude that for today. But listen to this: it was a song that was produced. Um, I can't remember the guy's name who does this. I met him. He's really good. Uh, for Simit, the International Center for um, Maize and Wheat. And uh, it's all actual interviews or words of Dr. Borlaug that have been melded together musically and uh, tell a beautiful story. So thank you so much for listening to Talking Biotech. Listen to this. Share it with some friends. Thank you very much. I grew up on the land on a small farm in northeast Iowa. I felt that families on the lands needed help from scientists, and I dedicated my life to science. The first and foremost problem in this crowded and overcrowded world is one of food. And the magnitude of the problem that confronts us is fantastic and frightening. In many parts of the world, yields are very low. We cannot continue to ignore this problem of food. Distribution is of prime importance to solving human problems. How do we draw attention to its importance? It has to come from within. And I am not one to sit idly by and see man increasing his numbers faster than food production. I am not one to sit idly by. If I have anything to contribute to this world, I'm going to play that card and play it hard. When I know that our scientific facts are right, I'm going to play that card and play it hard. We must continue to improve our technology if we are to keep pace with this growing demand for food, if we are to have a stable world. The good farmer is the person who can put all the pieces together. It starts with production, then you have to have the variety. Proper time of preparation of the land for planting and must be executed by people who have the motivation. Plants talk to you. They tell you whether they're healthy, whether they're happy, and the way they grow and develop is an outward manifestation of this. The plants will talk in a quite intelligent voice. You have to live with them. You have to feel their pulse. This is very critical. This is very critical. Look what happened to the dinosaur. When he lost his ability to change, 
he became obsolete. Is this the destiny of the human species? And I am not one to sit idly by and see man increasing his numbers faster than food production. I am not one to sit idly by. If I have anything to contribute to this world, I'm going to play that card and play it hard. When I know that our scientific facts are right, I'm going to play that card and play it hard. It is my hope that all who are born into this world, we can provide with the basic necessities for a decent, humane life. And this seems to be urgent to me, to try to help in some small, modest sort of way. We might be surprised how much we can improve the environment. You've been listening to Talking Biotech, sponsored by Calabra, the platform that bridges the gap between siloed research tools. With Calabra's electronic lab notebook, scientists can work together in real time, sharing data and insights with ease. Revolutionize your research collaboration. Sign up for a demo today at calabra.app, C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P.